Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Gluten-Free Voice. I'm Jules, and I'm back again this week. It is Celiac Awareness Month, so we got to cram all kinds of good stuff in this month while we have the opportunity to talk about these issues that are important to so many of us year-round, but we have the attention of the rest of the world during this month of Celiac Awareness. Um, happy to have back on the show again today um, Rachel Begun, who, if you've heard her other episode here on the Gluten-Free Voice, we I think we got cut off somewhere like way in the middle of where we would have gone with this conversation because Rachel and I could talk for hours on the gluten-free diet and how to live well with celiac disease and um, how to, you know, educate others about it without, you know, being preachy. And I mean, there's just so many different things we could talk about. So Rachel is back on the show today. We're specifically going to cover non-celiac gluten sensitivity and some other issues because of what's been in the media recently, but I'm sure we'll hit on some other topics. I've gotten some questions in, and so I, I want to jump right into it. Rachel, thank you again for joining us today and for coming back on the show. Oh, my pleasure. It's always a blast talking to you about these things. Well, and let me just back up by saying, if you haven't heard the earlier show with Rachel, if you're not familiar with her on Twitter and Facebook and her other social media, she is a registered dietitian, nutritionist. She does have celiac like me, and that's why we could talk for hours about life with celiac. Um, She's also a national spokesperson for the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, and she's on the NFCA board, and a visiting instructor at the Institute of Culinary Education in New York. She's interviewed by all kinds of news media because she is an expert in this field, but also because she comes at it from the unique perspective of living it herself. So without further ado, you and I have have been talking off the air about this, and I know you've had an opportunity to um, listen to at least part of the show with Dr. Fasano on Monday the issue of non-celiac gluten sensitivity, you know, I'm sure you see this in your practice as well. I hear about it all the time. You know, people are so relieved that in 2011, the scientific community finally acknowledged this diagnosis of non-celiac gluten sensitivity. They've gone through the test, the person has symptoms, but they come back negative for celiac, they go on a gluten-free diet, they feel better, you got it. You've got non-celiac gluten sensitivity. Well, now the news media has gotten a hold of several other studies that are going on now that are perhaps even questioning what we now thought was, was you know, an accepted principle and accept a diagnosis of NCGS. But can you just back up and talk about it a little bit more from a scientific background? Um, and then what what is your recommendation as a dietitian nutritionist if someone is, you know, going through the testing for celiac disease, if they're not able to get a firm diagnosis, you know, what is the best way to handle that and to proceed with attempting a gluten-free diet? You know, when do you do that? How do you do that? You know, from a professional perspective, I'd love for people to hear, you know, this is really the way you do it. You don't mess around and start, you know, dabbling with the diet without, you know, doing it right. 
Yeah, well, I think, you know, for starters, this research that you're talking about, I mean, I'm not a, an expert on the technical details of the study, but, you know, my basic understanding is that, you know, this, these studies that we were talking about are, you know, quest they questioned whether gluten sensitivity was really a distinct condition when after, and, and that was after the fact that it had been established that it was a unique condition, and it is a unique condition. It's, um, uh, it's unique from, from celiac disease in the perspective of it's not an autoimmune disorder, but there is something, there is a reaction going on in the body. There's something going on in the body for people who um, may not have celiac disease, but when they eat gluten, they're getting these negative symptoms. And what this, what these group of studies were questioning, and also, you know, one study is showing one thing and another study is showing another, I think it's just really questioning. It's hard to differentiate the person from gluten sensitivity from the person with IBS. I mean, I think that's really what it's really coming down to because what we've seen is with people with IBS and that's irritable bowel syndrome which is a very vague syndrome it, it, in over the years it's been very difficult for people to uh, find relief for their symptoms but what we have seen is that there is this diet called the low FODMAP diet where we are starting to see success with people with IBS um, and basically FODMAP is a very long acronym but basically mm-hmm. what it's stands for are a bunch of car a different bunch of carbohydrates that are hard to be digested and because they are not digested well they're causing these symptoms and so we have seen success with people with IBS so i think what this study was really questioning is Um, you know, what it showed was that people who were self-diagnosed with gluten sensitivity, uh, when they went on a low FODMAP diet, they were actually experiencing lots of um, symptom relief. And so really the question is, is, was it low FODMAP that was really contributing to their symptom relief or is it truly gluten that is at the heart of it? So there's a lot to be figured out there and I'm certainly not the person who has the answers, but it's more of that question. There's just this overlap of, you know, what are these people truly gluten sensitive or are these people more on the IBS side and maybe it's low FODMAPs that's at, that's at issue? And as a dietitian, really the heart of the matter is, is it's, it's really, if there's one thing that I can recommend is not to self-diagnose because mm-hmm. it's very hard. You're, you'll probably hear this word elimination diet being yep. thrown around. And an elimination diet is when somebody believes they are, you know, responding negatively to a certain food. So you take that food out of the diet or maybe you take many foods out of the diet um, and you really are sticking to only... Uh, foods that, uh, you know, have very low uh, likelihood for reacting to, and then you slowly slowly add back in the foods that potentially may be at issue so that you can identify what the problem food might be. The problem is, is when you do an elimination diet on your own, it's very hard to tease out what that specific food might be. So I always highly recommend that if you think you are gluten-sensitive, gluten sensitive, um, there is an, there's a proper pro- protocol for how you should handle it. First and foremost, you should be tested for celiac disease to rule that out. Um, you know, if you are tested positive, well, then that's a whole different road that you're going to go down because you absolutely need to be on a gluten-free diet and, and deal with having celiac disease. But then if you 
are ruled out negative for having celiac disease and potentially gluten still might be the issue, uh, I really highly recommend that you work with your healthcare professional team to do that elimination diet rather than trying to do it on your own because it really is very hard to do it on your own to figure out what the food at issue may be. Yeah, and um, I think, you know, especially because, you know, during Celiac Awareness Month and um, when people are, you know, following celebrities who are on a gluten-free diet or or other things like that, and the mainstream media covers celiac and gluten and um, gluten sensitivity, when people read these things in the news media and they're not hearing about it from their doctors, a lot of people will just dive in and try it, and they'll say, oh, I'm going to take gluten out of my diet and see what happens because, you know, everyone else is doing it or whatever. And that's when it gets messed up <laughs> because, A, a lot of times they don't know what they're doing, as you alluded to. Um, they're not sure that they've actually removed the gluten, but they also might be removing other things like the FODMAPs and finding relief from that. So it's hard to tease out what's really their relief. But first and foremost, we don't know if that person has celiac disease. And so, you know, you really do need to seek um, help from your medical professionals to first find out if you have celiac, then try the gluten-free diet with assistance. Because it's anybody out there listening who has gone gluten-free knows it is not easy when you first go gluten-free to be sure that you're truly going gluten-free. And secondarily, to be sure you're getting enough nutrition. I mean, you know, when you take, start taking things out of your diet – it's very easy to live a healthy, gluten-free life, but you need to understand where you're getting your nutrition from. This is what you and I talked so much about the last time when you were on the show. So definitely seeking the help of a medical professional, um, and especially you know gastroenterologists who have dietitians on staff are just the best because you know you get the whole gamut there where everything's covered and they don't sort of send you off into the world to figure it out on your own, which we hear about so much. But um, you you gave a good explanation of why FODMAPs can be troublesome and difficult to identify, but could you just run through some examples of foods that are considered to be those types of FODMAP foods that might give people some gastrointestinal distress because they're not completely broken down? Sure. Well, just to, and I hope I'm getting this right, but I'll just go through the acronym. But basically, FODMAP stands for fermented oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides, and polyols. And so those are just a group of carbohydrates, as as Ian, you mentioned, that um, can be hard to digest. And it's not just one category of food, whereas with celiac disease, when you're avoiding gluten, it's basically gluten is found in three types of grains and the foods that they're derived from. So it's, you know, very, not that it's easy to go on a gluten-free diet, but it's just this one more smaller category of food to to, to be focusing on, whereas FODMAPs run the gamut across the food across the food board. So basically, you know, it can be um, de- it, it, those uh, those carbohydrates that we talked about. They can come from fruits and vegetables. Um, you know, some people respond uh, negatively to things like apples and pears or onions and garlic. It can come from it can come from dairy products. Um, the very confusing part about it is is that wheat does fall within that FODMAPs, and so obviously right. that means you know, people are taking gluten out, and that's really where a lot of that confusion between a FODMAP diet and a gluten-free diet where you're seeing benefits. Uh, so really, um, 
you know, beans fall into that category. So it's uh, certain types of beans. So it, there's really a, a wide range of foods, and it's not the whole category of foods. So it's not all fruits and vegetables. There are certain fruits and vegetables that are more likely to be uh, to cause those symptoms. So, you know, they're very very picky foods and everybody's different so while there's general categories of uh, foods and types of foods that people tend to react to each person reacts differently you know some may beans may be more of an issue for some people whereas onions and garlic may be more of an issue for another person so again that's where it's really hard to do it on your own and identify specifically because, you know, not only do some of these foods overlap based on, um, you know, like we said before, they may overlap in the fact that they have gluten, but they're also potentially a high FODMAP food. Uh, there's also, you know, the fact that, um, we eat foods in groups. You know, we don't, it's very rare that we eat one food as a single ingredient. We eat meals where there are multiple ingredients. So it is, it's very difficult to tease it out. And that's why I always recommend uh, that people uh, do it under the care of their health professional. I've even had registered dietitians who've questioned whether they may be having issues. And I say to them, I know you're a dietitian, but don't do it on your own. Do it under the care of somebody else. It is just much easier on your more likely to really find what that specific trigger is. Yeah. Well, and, you know, I think you mentioned earlier about IBS, irritable bowel syndrome, and I know a lot of listeners would be you know, nodding their heads um, that so many people have received that diagnosis of IBS, and um, maybe it actually is celiac, or maybe it's gluten sensitivity, or maybe it is a sensitivity to some of these FODMAPs. Um, and the fermented foods that are causing them troubles. Um, but it is, there are so many different avenues you can go down, and you really need to start at the top. You need to start with, do you have celiac disease? No. Then, okay, go to the next level. <laughs> do you have a sensitivity to gluten, which, you know, again, as you mentioned, wheat is one of the FODMAP foods, so you need to look at that. And then if you're going gluten-free, but you're still not totally better, then what? And, you know, I always tell people at that point, you know, you want to look at things like dairy and, and other things like that, but this FODMAP thing is becoming super popular. So, you know, people are, are trying it and finding that they're having relief. But if you are gluten-free, it could put you on the path to exposing your body to more FODMAP foods. And you might find that you're, you know, even if you've been diagnosed with gluten sensitivity or celiac, you're not feeling all the way better even though you're gluten-free because, you might still have other problems. Every body yes. is different. And, you know, you mentioned beans. Well, one of the one of the most popular gluten-free flours out there is bean flour, you know, the fava bean flour, the, the garfava flours, the garbanzo flours. So you might be having intestinal distress or other symptoms, even though you're, you swear you're 100% gluten-free, and you are, but you might be reacting to bean flour or, you know, there's, there's so many different things that could be going on that you're right. It's super helpful to have someone else kind of step back and help you do that food diary and help you really map out what you're eating and taking things out of your diet and adding things back one at a time. And, you know, I get questions, especially after Dr. Fasano's talk on, on Monday on this show, I got a ton of questions from people said this exact same scenario that we're talking about here, Rachel, just that, you know, I'm gluten-free or my husband's gluten-free, or but they're not better, you know, and yeah. they have celiac, but they're not better. Well, that's where I think people are just struggling to find answers, and it's good to hear information about this kind of thing. But to me, what's 
amazing about the media stuff that's coming out now is that people are hearing, you know, it's the IBS and the FODMAP and all that, and, and therefore there's no non-celiac gluten sensitivity, which is discouraging for me because I know from, you know, so many people that I talk to, my readers, and, uh, you know, they have gotten 100% better. They don't have celiac, but they're gluten-free, and all of a sudden yeah. their life has changed. I mean, there, there is something to it. And I was very excited to hear Dr. Fasano saying that they're working on trying to find biomarkers for it so that there can be a test one day soon for non-celiac gluten sensitivity because I'm sure, like, in your practice, too, it's just so frustrating not to be able to have a definitive test. Yeah, well, I want to comment on two things on that because, um, number one, as you mentioned, a lot of people with celiac disease or, you know, IBS, well, I'll take IBS out of this sentence, but uh, a lot of people with celiac disease and gluten sensitivity, like you said, they've gone gluten-free and then they're not feeling better. And the first automatic assumption people make is that, oh, well, they are getting gluten in their diet. Yeah. But sometimes, like you said, people still are having, you can have celiac disease and still need to maybe perhaps um, reduce some of your FODMAPs because they are troublesome for you. So we, we often try to think of these things as, you know, in one solo bucket. You have one or the other, and there can be overlap. Um, so just wanted to kind of, you know, uh, counter, yeah. uh, not counter, but basically support that point that you're making. Yeah. But another point is, 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 the whole diagnose, the diagnosing part of gluten sensitivity. I am absolutely a believer that, yes, there is such a thing as gluten sensitivity. I'm a huge fan of Dr. Fasano's work, and I truly believe that gluten sensitivity exists. And um, But uh, we have to be also uh, uh, um, tell people that there is this kind of this misnomer out there that there is a test for gluten sensitivity, and that is um, there is not a scientifically accepted test for gluten sensitivity at this point in time. They're working towards one, but there is not one at this uh, point in time. So really, how we diagnose, because we don't know what gluten sensitivity is, because we don't have a biomarker for it, what we have to do to diagnose gluten sensitivity is the, is, uh, is, it's basically a diagnosis of exclusion. So you have to basically rule out celiac disease and wheat allergy through those proper protocols, and then you have to do an elimination diet. And again, the elimination diet under the supervision of a physician or a dietitian or and or dietitian is uh, that's how you get to a diagnosis of gluten sensitivity. So we don't have that test yet. Um, hopefully we will in the near future, but just know that uh, there is not yet a, uh, test to diagnose gluten sensitivity. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I'm glad that, that you raised it as well because um, there's a lot of confusion around that. I mean, you, you hear you can mail off, you know, samples of this, that, or the other thing and get different results and things. But in terms of what's a scientifically accepted test for celiac or for gluten sensitivity, you really do have to stick with, um, you know, the medically accepted um, course of action that we have right now. They're working on it, everybody. They really are. But um, right now we don't have that type of test. And I know people are grasping at straws and want answers. But what I always tell people is if you've been tested for celiac from your doctor, you've had the biopsy and, and it's negative, and, and of course there's still a potential that you have it and that they've missed it. That's always the risk. But um, And you then go and take gluten out of your diet and you feel you know, world's better what more do you need at that point? Like your your body is 
speaking to you and telling you, you know, we don't like this stuff, and um, you know, we're gonna we're gonna perform much better without gluten. Thank you very much. And it's the same for other things. People who have dairy issues, people you know who have other sensitivities. You really have to be dialed in and listen to your body. Um, and and then you know, when you when you hear it, you need to listen and and actually respond and stick with the gluten free diet, whether or not you have a firm diagnosis or not. If if you've been through all of the steps with your physician and you don't have celiac, then it's something that a lot of people then test later and find out. But the saddest part is when people take gluten out of their diets before they ever get tested and they feel the world's better and then the doctor says, but you have to go back on gluten so we can test you for celiac. And, you know, that's no fun. <laughs> no fun for yeah. anybody. And then you didn't get enough gluten and, you know, just that whole thing. So just please, when, you know, for all the listeners out there, if you hear about celiac and gluten-free, and if you're advising your friends or family, please have them get tested first before they go down this path. Um, you mentioned also, Rachel, just to go back to um, – you know, the tests that people are throwing out there, and some of them are, you know, they're not scientifically validated, but you hear about them anyway. What about the issue of gluten enzymes? I mean, I'm sure you get that question as often as I do. You know, there's these different products that are out there that are supposed to make, you know, you can eat gluten when you take these enzymes because they're going to break the gluten down for you and you're going to not have symptoms. What do you tell people when they ask you about these types of products? Well, for people with celiac disease, I mean, they, you know, some of these products even say it right on the box. This is not a product that um, protects people with celiac disease. So, you know, first and foremost, just know that there, there's nothing to replace a gluten-free diet, uh, you know, when it comes to celiac disease. So, you know... I, you know, I personally don't recommend these products. Um, I've heard people with gluten sensitivity say that it helps, um, but I personally, I just, I personally don't recommend them. I just really am more traditional in the respect of basically following a gluten-free diet. Um, I, I also, I don't know that there is full assurance that these products would fully break down gluten. So, you know, mm-hmm. there still may be fragments that people are getting. So I, you know, that's my personal opinion. I do not recommend these products. I definitely don't recommend them for people with celiac disease. And for people with gluten sensitivity, you know, I, you know, I tell them it's not an end-all, be-all. Um, perhaps it can help. Uh, the difference between people with celiac disease and gluten sensitivity is that even though somebody with gluten sensitivity who eats small amounts of gluten, they may have negative symptoms, we don't know yet that if uh, eating small amounts of gluten when you have gluten sensitivity will lead to long-term health health consequences. So I think that's a, a little bit of a difference. So for people with celiac disease, I really don't recommend them at all. And for people with gluten sensitivity, I, you know, there's, there's just that huge caveat that, yes, I, I think that really you're most protected by eating a gluten-free diet, and, and that should be uh, your primary goal, and if you want to take them as a as a as an added step, um, you know you can do that. But I don't know that there's um, that's going to you know completely protect you. Yeah, no, I I think you definitely answered it <laughs> the way that I would as well. I it's just it's frustrating because people are looking for that panacea um and for the the magic pill that's going to mean that they can, you know, live their lives completely normally and they don't have to worry anymore. And if you have celiac, it's really a different animal altogether. And unfortunately, sometimes when you have celiac disease, it's harder to tell if you have 
gotten glutened than if you have gluten sensitivity because it can be a process that takes longer to um, you know for you to have the reaction to it and then it lasts for much longer as well. So and it some people can are almost and Go ahead. Yeah, and some people are asymptomatic. So yeah. you know, you know, there's like there's like the good and the bad to being an asymptomatic uh, yeah. celiac yeah. because Yes, it's great that you don't feel bad from an outward perspective, but then again, you don't know when you're being glutened, and that's a bad thing because you and I both know when you're glutened, you know, it is like a wake-up call. Like you're just, it's like not that we aren't 100% diligent, but when you are glutened, it's just, it's that much more of an extra wake-up call to be like, wow, did I do, I think this is what where I may have gone wrong. And so there is actually a good thing in actually having symptoms because I do think you it, it you may be a little bit more diligent because you don't want to feel that bad. So, you know, there's that piece of it as well. I agree 100%. And, you know, it, it makes it difficult because I, I get so frustrated when I hear people say, I have celiac disease, but I'm not as sensitive as some other people are. I can tolerate a little bit of gluten, and I'm just like, you know, my just I, I start – you know, uh, hyperventilating. <laughs> like, yeah. You're not getting yeah. it. Um, because they don't understand. If, yeah, they don't yeah, understand, they don't understand that just because deal. they're not feeling bad doesn't mean mm-hmm. that the damage in their body isn't happening. It is happening. They just, for some reason, they're just not experiencing the outward symptoms. So, you know, we just have to be really dil- diligent about reminding people that just because you don't feel bad doesn't mean that there isn't damage going on. Right. And I was actually I was working at a restaurant um, in Washington D.C. earlier this week. I was doing um, a consultation on you know food allergies and celiac disease, um, you know, contamination and that that kind of thing. And that was one of the things that I explained to them. As I said, you know, you you in the restaurant industry are used to you know thinking about someone having an anaphylactic reaction or something like that if if they have received um, you know if they've gotten exposed to something that they're allergic to. And so I think that there's the perception that people with celiac disease, sometimes that they're, um, you know, not really having any negative reactions to exposures because most people with celiac disease, you know, when they eat at a restaurant, if they've gotten contaminated, by the time they leave, they may still not know that they've had contamination. So they look normal walking out the door. They don't have to, you know, get an um, EpiPen out and um, in order to be able to breathe again. That doesn't mean that they're walking out the door and they're fine, you know. Um, most of them will have some reactions to the, the gluten and they'll last for a very, very long time. Um, I, I don't know about you, but when I have been glutened, I mean, I'm sick at least for two weeks. And, you know, that's not something that I would ever want as a restaurateur to cause someone, you know, that distress. Yeah. Um, and so it's, it is a harder concept to explain to people if they don't see the immediate reaction. And certainly if you are one of those people, um, it's harder to understand yourself that there's still damage being done, even if you don't feel that. You know, you, ha- you haven't burned your hand on the stove yet, you know. Right. Um, but that's, that's our constant challenge in, in celiac awareness and in explaining to patients and, and to readers about what's really going on. And I hear from people all the time, you know, I had questions even just this week about, you know, what do I say to my coworkers who don't really believe me, um, you know, and they order out food or, you know, we have a catered lunch or whatever, and, and they're like, oh, you can have a little, or, well, you know, because they maybe have seen by accident where they've, you know, gotten some gluten and they didn't see an immediate reaction. So they, they buy into this media thing that it's a fad or, you know, what have you. And it's frustrating. It really is frustrating. But 
um, I think, you know, if we just keep up the education and keep explaining to people what's really going on, that we'll get the message out eventually. Yeah, absolutely. And I think also, you know, like you said, because, you know, that terminology of a life-threatening reaction with food allergies, and I've seen so many times where it says, well, celiac disease is not a life-threatening reaction. Okay, yes, we're, we're not going through anaphylaxis at the time, but, you know, when you continue to get exposure to gluten, your, your likelihood for other associated disorders increases. And so, um, and, they, and they're serious diseases. There are other autoimmune dis- uh, yeah. disorders. For some people, it can be infertility. It can be neurological issues. And even in some very severe cases, it can be cancer. So, I mean, and I'm, and I'm certainly not an extremist and, and I don't use fear mongering, but I think that's what people don't realize is that that continuous exposure to, glu- to gluten, uh, there are long-term health consequences and it can affect your quality of life and it could potentially even, um, you know, shorten your, your life. So, so yes, there, the, it is a very serious issue. Yeah, and um, even as Dr. Prasanna was saying on Monday, you know, because there is such a strong connection between autoimmune diseases, celiac is an autoimmune disease. Once you have one that is active, you're more likely to succumb to others as well. So, you know, type 1 diabetes, um, lupus, um, you know, thyroid disease, you know, any kind of other autoimmune disease, rheumatoid arthritis, you know, who wants any of that, <laughs> you know? Exactly. If, if you have control... It's a beautiful thing, really. I mean, you have control over whether or not you decide to poison your body with gluten if you have celiac disease. And if you don't poison your body with gluten, then you are preventing, um, in as much as you possibly can, um, your risk of of receiving or of of contracting any other um, of these diseases. So anyway, it's again, it's about the education. It's about the awareness. It's about the understanding um, of the disease and the process. And and I'm excited that we're on the cusp of learning so much more about non-celiac gluten sensitivity as well. So we have that to look forward to. Well, and I wanted to thank you again, Rachel. Of course, our time is up already. Um, Again, we could chat for hours about these subjects, and someday we will um, get a chance to do so in person, I sure hope. But um, thanks for taking some time out of your day and sharing your insights and your expertise. I really appreciate it, especially during Celiac Awareness Month, to take a little bit of time and talk about these things is really fantastic. So thank you for your time. Thank you for your expertise and for your dedication to the cause. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, I, like we all try to do, just spread as much awareness during Celiac Awareness Month as possible as well as throughout the year. And you have a personal invitation to come out to Colorado so we can talk about all these things in much greater detail as well as uh, more social fun things uh, in person. I will take you up on it. Thank you so much. <laughs> all right. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Bye.